Good afternoon, Dr. Dewan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Dr. Ash Dewan. I work at Piedmont Family Medicine in Warrington, and I'm uh, board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine, and I have an advanced certification in pain management. You're quoted in this week's Opioid Ripples articles as a proponent of medication-assisted therapy. Can you give us your take on how we got to this point? How did the opioid crisis become such an epidemic? It's a great question. So it started in the late 80s with a couple of studies that came out, which showed that physicians were uh, greatly under-treating pain. And there were some studies that showed that the risks of addiction to opioids specifically was very overblown. Uh, we hadn't had prescription of opioids for non-cancer patients in, in nearly seven decades. So that sort of um, studies, along with uh, some of the marketing by big pharmaceutical companies, uh, OxyContin is a good example, really downplayed the risks of addiction. As long as pain was present, uh, it was thought that it's a low risk and the benefit would, would really help patients. And then the Joint Committee on Hospital Accreditation came around and made pain uh, the fifth vital sign. And so physicians were often judged by how well they were uh, alleviating pain in a hospital setting. So all this sort of snowballed over time. And uh, so with the new medications that came out, the low perceived risk, and no real set rules as to how we could dose the medicine is what fueled the fire. So if you see some charts on the internet, it'll show you the number of uh, hydrocodone, oxycodone prescriptions starting at about the late 90s, I mean, sorry, the early uh, 90s to about 2010, it's just skyrocketed. And again, with no rules or, or algorithms, um, people started getting tolerant to these medicines and then uh, addicted to them, unfortunately. Now, it should be said that only a small, uh, relatively small percentage uh, who receive opioids actually become addicted. But in the whole scheme of things, that's a large number. Why is it so common for recovering addicts to relapse? That's a great question. That's a question I get common. I think there's two, two big answers to this. One is that addiction is not something that we can just treat like bronchitis or pneumonia. It's a chronic disease. And why is it a chronic disease? Not just because we say so. It's because it's known to cause structural and chemical changes in the brain. So here's an example. We have, when we think of our brain, we have to think of it as an outer core and an inner shell. The outer core is the more human part of the brain. It's responsible for things like judgment, insight, decision-making. The inner core is the more emotional part of the brain. That's associated with survival, emotion, uh, safety. So we all have in our brains, inner core, something called the reward uh, pathway. That reward pathway is meant to, to reproduce, for us to reproduce certain behaviors that are essential for survival. So eating, reproduction, etc. So why when we're you know, hungry and we eat a piece of chocolate cake, it feels so good, is because that's causing an elevation of dopamine 20 to 40 times in that reward center in the brain. But it doesn't last long and it gets back to baseline. Heroin, or high-dose uh, opioids, what they do is they skyrocket that dopamine thousand times what the normal it would be. And so chronic use of these types of medicines, especially uh, heroin, will cause, like I said, such a rise in dopamine that it changes the set point in that reward pathway. 
Therefore, now you require higher and higher doses of dopamine to even feel a normal set point. So that changes, and so that changes in the brain, but also it activates a chemical called glutamate, which causes hypermemories to occur. So what does all that mean? It means now that nothing in your daily life, no natural rewards, really meet uh, expectations or rewards. And then reminders of use, of when you're used, that kicks in and, and causes cravings to occur. Um, and so that's why people have habitual use despite harm. So resetting of the natural reward pathway, and it gets to the point where that inner part of the brain now starts becoming the predominant motivator. It will override the cortex, the more human part of the brain. And this is what's responsible for the behaviors associated with, with addiction. So people ask, well, how, why is it that, you know, they, they, you know, they miss their kid's birthday or, or nothing seems to, you know, um, help, help with them other than the drug? It's because their bio biochemistry and biology has changed. Now, if someone goes into detox and gets off of the drug or someone gets in treatment, yes, they're off of the medication or the, the drug, but that set point has not reset. It will take, you know, if someone's been using heroin for five years and they're in detox and they go into some uh, treatment for three months, that set point is still sky high. It's going to take a long while for that set point to reset. And this is what, unfortunately, the tragedy is. Most people are like, well, he's been in treatment. You know, what, what's the problem now? Why he can't control it? He or she can't control it because the changes have occurred. And if they've been using for five years, it's going to take two and a half to three to four years to get back to normal. And during that time, they need to be in treatment. So that's really why it's so hard for addicts to just stop. Can you talk to me a little bit about medication? Uh, therapy and why it's so helpful. Absolutely. There's currently is three medications approved by the FDA for treatment. One is buprenorphine, naloxone, one is methadone, and one is naltrexone. Methadone and buprenorphine, naloxone are very helpful in terms of controlling cravings and withdrawal symptoms. When patients are undergoing cravings and withdrawal, nothing really else is going to, to matter to them because they can't even think straight or see straight to be in any kind of counseling or other treatment. So those are very useful for getting them out of the emergency situation and getting them medically stabilized. So we refer to those two as you know, medical stabilization. And then at that point, they get into uh, counseling and more intensive therapy, which I'll talk about later. If, they're, if they have been taken off the medicine, so if they've been hospitalized or incarcerated and, and everything is out of their system, naltrexone is another medicine, which is essentially an acid blocker. It blocks the opioid receptors so that if they were to use, nothing would happen. But it doesn't really do anything for cravings or, or you know, they've already undergone the withdrawal, so that's not applicable. But again, I said the danger is, is that once they stop that, now they're more prone to relapse because they really haven't done anything to reset that natural reward set point. Are there certain people that that works better for than others? I think it's um, like, like diabetes uh, or like other diseases. It depends on the severity of their disease. So medication-assisted therapy is recommended for all patients because it tends to have the best outcome in the long term. 
the, really the, the best outcome we want is recovery and off of everything. Our goal is never to keep patients on medicines indefinitely. It's to get them off, but get them off safely so that they are not relapsing. So if they have a more severe disease, if they've been using heroin IV for years, they are going to need medication-assisted therapy for a more intense and longer period of time. If they've been taking a couple of pills of hydrocodone every day, they will still need it, but perhaps not as uh, intense a therapy. Why are such a small percentage of doctors certified to prescribe FDA-approved opioid addiction medications? That's a great question. So I think it's twofold. One is we really don't get a lot of training in medical school or residency about opioids and especially about addiction, uh, unless you're in the psychiatric realm. So I, I didn't learn any of this in medical school or in residency, and it was, you know, much of it came to me in practice. And then when I did my additional training in addiction and pain is when all this came about. So there was no lectures that I learned what I'm telling you from um, in, in, in training. Uh, the, uh, the second thing is a negative stigma associated with it. I think people think that it's basically people make bad choices and they're responsible for their behaviors and this is what is a result of the behaviors. And that's, you know, really uh, ignorance to some extent. I mean, if Rush Limbaugh and Prince can have this problem, anyone can have this problem. And then the real answer is how do we treat it and what's the best way to go about it? So that's what I'm uh, advocating. How do intensive outpatient programs work? Intensive outpatient programs are considered as a supplement to medication-assisted therapy. So, example, if a patient is um, hospitalized, detoxed, they usually go to either a residential facility um, or they'll go into intensive outpatient therapy. What happens with residential therapy or just straight detox, it, is, it has the dubious distinction of a 100% relapse rate. So if they don't get treatment outside of that acute episode, like I said, it's not an acute disease, it's a chronic disease, they will relapse. Intensive outpatient therapy is considered a, an alternative to residential therapy in some ways in that people can still fulfill their roles of family, father, mother, work, but then go to this therapy three times a week uh, for two to three hours a day. And basically what it does is it looks at what are some of the underlying issues that are contributing to use. So low self-esteem, other psychiatric issues, um, feelings of isolation, uh, depression, um, you know, how to deal with, with their life. So that uh, one of the real uh, difficult things about addiction is, is that stress serves as an anti-reward. So when people are stressed, they are more apt to have cravings and desire to use because that immediately alleviates that anxiety and stress. So if we don't deal with the underlying stress issues or other psychiatric issues, then we're never going to really solve the problem. And again, we don't want to keep medicines. Medicines are to keep people safe and prevent them from overdosing and dying. They're not a single treatment alone. And so most of the studies... But most of the studies have shown that without medication, people relapse much quicker. So the best thing to do is to get them safe on whatever medication, and buprenorphine or naltrexone is what I prefer, um, and then get them in therapy, and then just kind of slowly see how they're doing and gradually wean the medication, and then have them succeed off of that. But relapse is common, 
if I treat a diabetic and I get them on insulin or I get them on medicines and their A1Cs normalize and then I don't see them and then they go off the wagon again, are they bad people? Do I, you know, punish them? No, it's part of their disease. So the same thing with addiction. If they relapse, it just means that they need to get into more intense therapy and get back uh, on the horse. It doesn't mean that, oh, they're, you know, they have a problem and it's not being addressed because, unfortunately, there aren't, there isn't enough education regarding how to treat this. There are no set good standards of care, and that's what we're pushing. Can you tell me why so few people who are addicted to opioids get treatment? Yes. Um, uh, one, as I mentioned, was is the negative stigma. Two is um, uh, they may not have the resources. Uh, and um, three, they may not be aware of what the, what the treatment options are. So uh, I, re- I read a study where if you, if, if you look at the number of people who are suffering from depression or hypertension, um, you know, eight out of ten people who are identified with the problem are treated. With addiction, it's more like 10%. So again, they're afraid of being treated badly, they're afraid of the stigma, but also uh, we don't have enough providers uh, to be able to understand how to treat them and, and, and what to do. So those have been, and then cost issue is another problem. There are many Zaboxone or Budavale or other providers or methadone clinics who uh, do offer treatment, but they're all cash treatment. Or they, you know, it, the cost is, is prohibitive. And, and they may not offer counseling as a part of it. So that is another problem, sometimes financing. So I, what I think is very important is that we take insurance, uh, we make sure that they're able to get counseling, we keep the costs fair, and then we keep them uh, affordable, and then we keep them in treatment as long as they, as they can, and educate them onto what, because they won't really know all this stuff. They think they're bad people too, and so that makes them want to not get treatment either. So... It's kind of educating the lay community as well as uh, our patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Ashton. It, it has been so nice to talk with you about this. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I, ju- I just uh, want to emphasize that this is um, uh, this is a huge problem. It's uh, it's a national epidemic. More people die of drug overdose than die in car accidents. More people are dying of overdose from from opioids than died from uh, AIDS at the height of that crisis in the 90s. So, but there are effective proven treatments that are available, and it's a matter of getting uh, into treatment and having a provider, um, you know, educated in that. Um, I would, I, I do think that uh, the limits that, that, and this is for, you know, the communities at large, the limits that are being placed on providers that can only see 275 patients is something that really should be looked at the government and lifted, especially for people who are board certified, take insurance, and are interested in, in uh, medication-assisted treatment and not just cash clinics. That would help increase the availability of treatment and proper treatment. Then we need to make sure that there are set uh, protocols available so that whether they're you know in Fauquier County or whether they're in Warren County or whether they're in Fairfax County, that they're all getting the same treatment. If you go to Stanford or you go to Harvard or you go to Fauquier, the treatment for a heart attack is the same. It should be the same with addiction. And um, I think that would go a long way into helping you know, control this epidemic, which is certainly doable. Uh, it's, it's straightforward. It's just not easy. We've got to get the word out and, and that there are effective treatment strategies available. 
That's great. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Fuckier.com.